if you want to understand what's happening in our country today, if you want to understand what's happening inside of the American church, it helps to understand what happened in 1954 in a place called Robber's Cave. It's a state park in Oklahoma. It was at Robber's Cave State Park that Muzaffar Sharif, an academic psychologist, conducted a social experiment. He was trying to find out how do people react when they're put in groups and a competition is involved. So what the team did, the academic team, is they got two groups of fifth grade boys, boys that were like in almost every way imaginable, same family structure, same race, same economic background, two groups of fifth grade boys that were taken to the camp or to the state park and put in little uh, camps but they weren't told that the other group was there. So for the first few days, they just bonded, hung out, played games. But then the researchers, they, they said, hey, you know, there's another group of fifth grade boys at this state park. And immediately they wanted a competition, right? Immediately they're ready to throw down, it's on. In fact, they gave each other team names. One group decided to call themselves the Eagles. The other group, they went for the name the Rattlers. You gotta love fifth grade boys, don't you? I think I loved all four of my kids at every age, but I'm not sure I liked them when they were fifth graders. But I think you're getting ready to see why. The researchers, they pretended to be counselors at the camp. And so as they created these competitions, they artificially made sure that the uh, score stayed really close so the pressure would stay on. And what these fifth grade boys divided up in the Eagles and Rattlers did is they started calling each other names, raiding each other's camps, throwing rocks at each other, accusing each other of cheating. The, the Eagles broke into the Rattlers camp and stole their team flag and burned it. So the Rattlers broke into the Eagles camp, stole a pair of the leader's pants, painted it orange and used that as their flag. But these uh, psychologists who were dressed up like counselors watching all that happened, they noticed something that was surprising to them. That each group of boys began to make up stories, stories that made themselves look good and the other team look bad. For example, the Eagles had a swimming pool in their camp and one day they got in the water and they thought the water was cold and they said the reason it was cold is because the Rattlers had broken into their camp and put ice cubes in the swimming pool. And the Rattlers found some trash down by their lake and they said the reason that trash is there is the Eagles came in and left it there. They kind of conveniently forgot that they're the ones that had the campfire there. That was their trash from the night before. You see, both teams said, we're not going to let the truth get in the way of a good rivalry. Well, the counselors had to end this social experiment before they intended to because they were afraid that the kids were going to come to blows. So here you have two groups of, of, of fifth grade boys that are very similar. And they should have become friends, but instead they became enemies. Enemies that accused and maligned each other. Two groups of boys who, who, who made their whole world about us versus them. But that's just fifth grade boys, right? I mean, adults wouldn't do stuff like that, right? I mean, adults wouldn't create unnecessary enemies, right? Adults wouldn't create or believe narratives about other people that maybe weren't all that accurate. Adults surely wouldn't have a win-at-any-cost attitude. Right? Adults wouldn't make this about us versus 
them. It's just what fifth grade boys do, right? Or, or maybe we are a nation now of fifth grade boys. Maybe we are a nation of eagles and rattlers. Maybe we're a nation that has found different tribes to identify with and belong to. Maybe we're a nation that has framed everything in modern life about us versus them. Does Jesus talk about this? I mean, our whole world is talking about how people are fracturing into groups. Our whole world is talking about tribalism and how it's tearing apart churches and families and the whole country. Does Jesus have anything to say about it? Does Jesus have anything to say about the us versus them attitude that characterizes our culture? It turns out he does. It turns out that this is a major theme in the whole Bible from beginning to end, even though it's an often overlooked theme. See, it turns out that that in the cross, God is not just reconciling individuals to himself. He's also reconciling people to each other. It's on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross, in which we pick up the story of Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, if you were one of his first disciples, you knew exactly why Jesus was going to Jerusalem. I mean, he was going to Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans, the people that had oppressed the the Jewish people. God's king, the Messiah, was going to overthrow the Roman king, the Caesar. Empire after empire after empire, century after century, the Jews had been oppressed and they were tired of it. They longed for a day that their Messiah, their king would come and overthrow the oppressors. James and John were two brothers that, that uh, uh, had become Jesus' earliest disciples. And, and they were so sure, so confident that Jesus was going to, Rome, or to Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. They were so sure that he was getting ready to open up a can on the, on the Romans that they said to him, Hey, Jesus, when you defeat them, can we sit at your right and your left? Hey, hey, Jesus, when you beat down your enemies, when the dust settles, we want to sit in positions of privilege and power. Man, Jesus' disciples, they had a really different understanding of what it meant for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Because what Jesus was going to Jerusalem for was to die. Luke 13. In any case, Jesus said, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. To to Jesus, going to Jerusalem meant a certain death, certain painful death. But on the way to Jerusalem, he, he runs into some opposition. So we pick the story back up in Luke 9. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. See, the Samaritans who lived in this village knew that that Jesus and his disciples were were Jews going to Jerusalem. And they said, yeah, you can't stay here. We don't don't like your kind here. you, You can't be a part of us. You're the them that we're not interested in building a relationship with. So no, just keep on going. 
It, it turns out that tribalism isn't new, that tribalism has been around a really long time, that for, for the, the, the us versus them way of thinking has been around since, since Cain killed Abel. So verse 54 when the disciple James and John, there's those two brothers again, the one that wanted to sit on the right and left, well, here they are again. When they saw this, when they saw that the Samaritans wouldn't let them stay in their village, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? How weird it must be to look at the Prince of Peace and say, hey, do you want us to napalm this village right now? But it made sense to them. I mean, in their world, in their way of thinking, it, it made sense to ask this. I mean, Jesus is, is, is going to defeat the Romans. He's going to defeat our enemies, the people who have oppressed us. So if we're going to go do that, then we might as well just start now. Let's just beat all our enemies. See, the, the, the disciples have a very different vision of what Jesus is up to. The disciples sound a lot like fifth grade boys. So how does Jesus respond to this request? Verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. It's easy to call down judgment on people you don't know. And how many Samaritans did James and John know? Not many, maybe none. Because Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. From the Jewish perspective, Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Jew and half-Gentile. Samaritans lived in their own villages. Samaritans worshipped in their own temple that the Jews had destroyed about a century earlier. The Samaritans had their own uh, scripture. They believed only the first five books of the Hebrew Bible were from God. So for Jews, the Samaritans were the worst kind of them. I mean, you could at least make an excuse for the Gentiles. They at least had never been exposed to God's law. But the Samaritans, they had been. They should have known better. The Samaritans were corrupting all that was good and true about Judaism. Or at least that's what the Jewish people believed. So that explains why when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and the disciples walk up and see him having a conversation with a Samaritan, that they're appalled. They say, no, no, this can't happen. You don't talk to people like that. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. It explains why when Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan that all the Jewish people were deeply offended. You can't tell a parable about a good Samaritan because there are no good Samaritans. Since Jews and, 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 and Samaritans didn't mix, they didn't know each other. They, they lived in like these cultural and ideological bubbles. And when you live in a bubble, it's easy to demonize people on the outside. Do you have real, true friendships with people who are really different from you? Maybe they're different politically. Maybe they're a different race. Maybe they're from a different part of the country, a different part of the world. They just see the world really differently than you do. Do you know them well enough that, that you've talked about those differences? So you don't just know what they believe, but you know why they believe it. You know how their life has shaped their beliefs. Do you have enough true, real friendships to know that there are good people in every group of them? Or do you live in a bubble? bubble of people who think like you. 
Maybe it's a neighborhood bubble or, or maybe it's an online bubble. In our divided world, it's easier and easier to live like the Jews and the Samaritans did. It's easier and easier to live in your own bubble. In 1972, uh, Richard Nixon won the presidency in a landslide. 60% of Americans voted for him. He won 49 states, and his opponent, George McGovern, won one state, Massachusetts. That's it. Absolute landslide. There was a woman named Pauline Kael who was an editor for The New Yorker and, of course, lived in New York. And after the election, she said, I was shocked. I only knew one person that voted for Nixon. So the country votes 60% for a candidate, 49 out of, out of 50 states. The state you live in goes for the candidate. And you only know one person that voted for him? That means you live in a bubble. That means you live around people who think like you do. Is that true of us? It's getting easier and easier to live inside a bubble. People who follow elections created a term called landslide counties. A landslide county is a county in which a presidential candidate won against their opponent, won by at least 20%. So in other words, whether the county went blue or red, it went decisively, over 20% difference between the two candidates, right? So they've been tracking this for a while. And here's a, a map of 1992 uh, uh, America, county by county. And the ones in red went decisively over 20% for the Republican that year. And the ones in blue went decisively over 20%. And the white ones were not landslide counties. It was somewhere in between. So you see, oh, you know, there's there's some landslide counties around, right? Well, that's 1992, a long time ago. Uh, how about this in 2000? Well, there's a lot more landslide counties, right? Well, what about in 2012? Even more. What's it look like in 2016? Almost everybody lives in a landslide county. I don't have a map, I couldn't find a map for 2020, but I do know this, over 57% of Americans live in a county that went at least 20% for one uh, party or the other. So most Americans live in uh, bubbles, political bubbles around people who think and vote and act and have similar values as to them. Maybe you live in a county bubble. Maybe you live in an online bubble with technology. It's easier and easier to be around people who think like you do. Maybe you live in a media bubble and the kinds of media that you consume. See, here's the problem. When you don't know people that are different than you, how, how do you trust them? And the answer is you don't. You don't trust them. That we've all become fifth grade boys who, who create or believe, quick to believe narratives that make us look good and other people look bad. To think people that are different than us are bad people. The disciples, they didn't know any Samaritans, but they knew a lot about Samaritans. They didn't shop at the same Samaritan kosher markets. And they didn't go to the same Samaritan weddings or, or share the Passover meal together. So where did they get their info? Well, where do you get info about people who you don't really know? We get it from media or social media or people 
who live around us, shared, share stories with us about people we don't know and we're quick to believe those stories, especially if it makes us look good and them look bad. See, more and more, we're believing the worst about people who are different than us. Pew Research, a super reliable research firm, they asked Republicans, Republicans and Democrats what they think about each other. And they came out with this report recently. It's full of charts and graphs. But here's the, the, the summary. Growing shares of Republicans and Democrats say that members of the other party, wait for it, are close-minded, dishonest, immoral, unintelligent, and lazy. <laughs> people different than me, people who don't think like me, people who don't vote like me, well, they're unintelligent, they're immoral, they're lazy. You can't trust them. They're bad people. Jesus won't let you as a Christian stay in the bubble. He refuses to. If you're going to follow Jesus, he brings you face to face with people who are a part of your them, your enemies. And he's trying to show you that, that those who follow him, well, you have more in common with them than you do of people of your political party or your, 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 your other tribes. Consider, consider two more of Jesus's early disciples. Simon and Matthew. Simon's nickname was the Zealot. And that's because he was part of this political movement called the Zealots. They advocated for the use of violence to overthrow Rome. Matthew, his nickname is the tax collector. Now, that means that he had sold out and turned his back on his uh, kinsmen and gone to work for Rome. He was a Roman collaborator so, so you talk about tribalism. Here's a guy who wants to overthrow Rome with violence, and here's a disciple who is literally on the payroll of Rome. You talk about classic us versus them. But Jesus said to each, follow me. And then when they responded in faith and began to follow Jesus, they joined a community in which we prioritize our loyalty to Jesus over our loyalty to any other tribe who prioritize our allegiance to Jesus instead of our allegiance to a cultural or ideological or political tribe. It's not that they believed all the same things now. It's not like Matthew and, and Simon agreed on everything. It's not even like there's Christian positions on all the issues that were uh, active in the first century or the 21st century. I'm sure they still argued. I'm sure they still debated. But even their debates changed. Because their loyalty now is to Jesus. They were loyal to the God who is sovereign over all things. They, 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 even the way they talked to each other about their disagreements changed. Well, in the end, they were both following Jesus, and Jesus changed both Simon and Matthew. And Jesus wants to change you and me, too. See, it's been said that Christians are a band of natural enemies who've been brought together by the love of God. A band of natural enemies who've been unified in Jesus. But if you stay in a bubble, you're going to be quick to believe the worst about them. But when you get to know real people, you realize that, that, that they're more complex than traditional media or social media portrays them. You, you, you learn that that Trump supporter, that drives you crazy, that he or she serves at the homeless shelter down the road. And, and you realize that that progressive socialist that you think is ruining the country is the one who brought you a meal when you had your child. 
See, when you, you, when you get to know real people, you realize they love their families. They love their communities. James and John, they got a lot wrong. They were wrong about the Samaritans. They wanted to call it down fiery judgment, but what they earned was Jesus' rebuke. And the interesting thing is that some of these Samaritans, when Jesus died and was resurrected, they became Jesus' followers. So maybe some of that, the people in the very village that James and John wanted to destroy are now worshiping next to them at church. Maybe some of those very people that James and John were, wanted to destroy are now friends of theirs because they follow the same king. James and John were wrong about Jesus's mission and what Jesus was trying to do because Jesus was not going to Jerusalem to, to defeat the Romans. He was going to Jerusalem to die for the Romans. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die for every them out there. James and John were wrong about the discipleship because Jesus' followers don't go around pronouncing judgment, trying to defeat our enemies. Instead, we follow Jesus who gave his life for them. And so we give our life for every them out there because we are motivated by the fact that Jesus gave his life for us when we were his enemy. Jesus reached out to us when we were his them. So who are the them in your life? The people different than you that Jesus is calling you to love. One of the most exciting things about being a part of The Crossing is that in the last several years, when other churches have splintered over politics, you've hung together. One of the most exciting things about being a part of The Crossing and truly admirable virtues is that when other people were, were, were leaving a diverse church to go find a church of people who looked like them and thought like them and voted like them, you hung together because you knew that what you have in common in Jesus is greater than any difference. And because you hung together, because you're following Jesus together, that means that you are a witness to our community and to the whole world that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the great king that can bring unity here and he can bring unity in families and he can bring unity in our country. Recently, Patrick Miller and I got a chance to write a book that we got to share your story. It's called Truth Over Tribe, uh, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. And in that book, we tell the story about how you guys have, have put your loyalty to Jesus above every other loyalty. In, when the chips have been down and the pressure's been the greatest and the tests have come one after the other after the other, that by God's grace, it's kind of all, you know, we've stayed together. And when people have had a chance to read this book, uh, like in the pre-publication process, we've asked people to consider endorsing it, here's what they inevitably say. That sounds like a fantastic church. I'd love to go to that church. It sounds like that, that, that the crossing is the kind of church I wish was down the road from me. Are there any other churches like that around me? Because that's what the church needs to be. So we've been able to tell your story in this book, and we're thankful for, for, for all that you have done uh, to, to, to make it a reality. Now, here's the deal. 
is that I might be the most cynical, suspicious person ever. So if a pastor is telling me to buy a book that he wrote, I am just naturally very suspicious, right? Uh, like, wh- wh- what's in it for you? And of course, the ultimate thing is that we all figure that's in it is money. So here's the deal. Not, not, not one dollar from this book goes to me or Patrick or any person. All of it is going back to the crossing to help us have the ministry we do in our community. Don't get too excited. It's not that much money, though. <laughs> so I'm just going to put everything on the table here for a second, okay? So the, the publisher, David C. Cook, gave us $30,000 as we were in the process of writing the book. $5,000 went to an agent who set it all up and did a bunch of work for us. And the other $25,000 came right here to the crossing. If the book sells well, then um, the church will get more money from it. And if it doesn't sell well, well, then it was over. We got the 30,000, you know, down to 25 after the agents paid and, and we're moving on. But either way, uh, no person, not me, not Patrick, not anybody gets any money from it. And so that means that if there are people that you can uh, think might benefit from it, you can tell them to buy a copy for themselves and not think, am I just you know, padding my pastor's pocket type thing, because that's not true. Here's the deal. I wish that it was just kind of a one-time decision, like, hey, we're not going to be tribal, and then we can just move on. But that's not the way, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not the way it goes. It's going to get harder and harder to keep our loyalty to Jesus above every other loyalty. As we hit election season, it's going to get harder and harder to remember that we have to think like Christians, not like Republicans or Democrats. So one of the things that we wanted to do was take some of the money that we got from the book and and help fight tribalism here in our community. So what we did is we just went and bought a bunch of gift cards, $5 gift cards to Lakota. And, And we want to give one to you and ask you to take out for coffee somebody that's different than you. I don't know how they're different. Maybe they voted differently. Maybe they're of a different race or they're from a different part of the world or a different part of the country or maybe they're a different generation. I don't know how they're different. Maybe they're a part of the LGBTQ community or I don't know, a homeless person. Somebody who's different from you that you sit down and, and, and talk to over, over coffee. Now, now we took the gift cards and we uh, put them on a card that has conversation starters. And maybe you're like, well, I do that, but where would I even start? We just get out the card and just go through the conversation starters. And if they're like, well, why do you have this card? Just go, well, I'm a part of a church that wants to break down us versus them. I'm a part of a church that encourages us to learn from people who are different than me. And I want to know more about you and your story and why you think the way you do. It's not a chance for you to lecture them. It's a chance for you to learn from them. It's not a chance for you to tell them all the reasons you believe the way you do. It's a chance for you to ask questions to understand them better. So outside, when you leave the building, there are uh, three little tents spread out across the uh, building outside. And you just go up to them, and they'll hand you the, the, the gift card that's attached to the conversation starters. And, and there's even a QR code on it that if you'll scan that QR code, it will allow you to tell your story about how the conversation went. Wouldn't it be cool to share with each other how uh, God used those conversations and, and what we learned and how the wall between us and them is, is broken down by Jesus? Make sure you pick one up on your way out. Will you pray with me? Will you just take a moment and pray for the them in your life? Maybe it's a political them. Maybe it's a 
a different generation. Maybe Gen Z in this room needs to pray for the boomers and the boomers for Gen Z. Maybe the them is part of a different community, a different race. Ask God to bless them. Ask God to be with them. Ask God to use them in your life to teach you. God, we've got a lot to learn. Jesus, thank you that you didn't walk away from your enemies, but you went to Jerusalem to die for your enemies, and that includes us. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross for them when we were the them in your life. And I pray that we would be so captured by your love that we would take it to our world and we'd show people that what we have in common in Jesus is far greater than our differences. May your hand of blessing and grace stay upon us as a church. A church of people made up here all over the country. It's your church, Jesus. So in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May God, may his face shine upon you. May he give you peace. May he be gracious to you. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday.